Okay, this is an episode I did with Dean Thomas, um, who now does uh, TV work for the UFC, but, you know, he was original. He was a guy who was around uh, late 90s, early 2000s. You know, he had a lot of fights, and uh, I first met him when he fought for TJ Thompson in Super Bowl on Oahu. He fought Stephen uh, Pauling, who was a really good fighter from Oahu. And uh, so I've known him a long time, and uh, he was nice enough to come on my show. And uh, I actually ran into him at UFC 277 in Dallas uh, at the hotel, Fight Hotel. So, uh, yeah, Dean Thomas, he had a long history in MMA. He trained with a lot of great guys. He, uh, you know, was managed by Jamie Levine for a period of time, who's a notorious guy. So he has a lot of uh, interesting stories. And uh, so check this interview out. It's Dean Thomas from Florida. Check it out. Okay, so this is Todd Atkins, and I'm here with Dean Thomas. Uh, you know, I first met Dean in Hawaii when he was fighting Super Brawl against uh, Stephen Bozo Pauling. So uh, what year was that? Do you remember? Oh, my God. That had to be, what, 2000? Maybe 2000 or 2001? Yeah, a long time ago. So, so yeah, that's that kind of... 20, was that 20 years ago? Yeah. Dog, we've been in this game for 20 years. Can you believe that? Yeah, it's kind of scary, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, longer than 20. Because that was, and that was like, Super Brawl was a big show back then. So, like, we, you know, we've been involved with the big show for over 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fun to kind of go back and talk to some people that, you know, have been around for that long. Yeah, man, like, if you could find them, and they ain't, they ain't too punch drunk. I feel like I'm getting there, too. So, like, if I slur some words or... I say something stupid, just blame it on my being, me being punch drunk. Well, let's kind of, you know, if people, maybe there's people out there that aren't familiar with you, kind of, let's kind of go, kind of start back in time. Cause I know you were kind of teaching yourself in the beginning, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, back then, you know, like nowadays, like you could throw a rock at, and you'll hit a school, you'll hit an MMA school or jujitsu school, a kickboxing place. But back then wasn't nothing. All we had were videotapes and desire. So like we had to teach ourselves. So like we got videotapes. I used to go to a lot of seminars, but we used to, you know, videotapes and we used to just get in the, get in the grass, man, and get dirty. That's how we learn. And what were some of the sets you remember watching? Oh my God. I used to like, I, uh, Henzo Gracie, Craig Kukok, Mario Sperry. Uh, I had the Oleg Taktorov. The Who Boss Rutten ones were popular too, I think. I had yeah, I had the Boss Rutten. I had the Boss Rutten. Man, I had I had a lot of junk, man. A lot of it. Like we would just and we you know we had it on VHS, so we would dub the VHS and give it to our buddies. So like <laughs> I mean, those were the, the good old days. And who are some of the guys you're working with? I know Paul Rodriguez and Chad Saunders, some of these guys. You had your own. Yeah, level. it was uh, Paul Rodriguez, Chad Saunders. Um mm-hmm. And this was, like, way back in the day. Like, afterwards, like, so when I first got started, that was, like, the crew. A guy named Steve Stravelli, who's actually still, he's a black belt jiu-jitsu now, still doing his thing down in South Florida. But, um, whew. And then I'm, when I moved to Orlando a few years later, I mean, but still in the early days, don't get me wrong. Then, I, you know, it was, like, Ben Saunders, um, Seth Petrozelli, you know, 
Mike Lee, these cats. Like, so, like, it was – and, I, like, they're all – like, some of them, cats don't know about them now, but, you know, they're coaching. I Like, Mike Lee and Seth Petrozelli coached Felicia Spencer. Um, Mike Cardoso, who's actually a ref in Florida. So, like, yeah, it was – man, we go back, man. It's, it's hard, to, hard to think back of those days, man, and not get a little sentimental. Yeah, and was was Jamie Levine managing you, or was he just kind of promoter that you fought in the show? No, Jamie Levine, he managed me, and he ran the show. So, like, you know, back then it seemed like kind of a scumbag thing to do, but it's actually the boxing model. So he was the promoter, and he and he managed me. So, like, he got me my fights in his shows, but he didn't really – I mean, he. I mean, he didn't really try to look out for me in this show neither. Like he was really, you know, putting me up. I mean, that's why I fought Jens Pover. So it wasn't like he was just trying to feed me bums, really. I mean, I did fight a couple bums. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, he was looking for a good fight regardless. But Jamie Levine was back then, and I mean, you know, looking back and seeing his character, like a lot of people hated on him back then. But I mean, he's really no different than a lot of promoters now. And he was kind of a trendsetter. I mean, he really was the like one of the first guys to really put the shit together. Do you remember when you met him? Like kind of, how, yeah, I remember exactly how, how did that happen? He, he threw a show in Orlando, a tournament. And I fought in that tournament. It was a four man tournament. Myself, Mike Lee, Petey Cook, and Scott Bills. And Mike, Petey Cook had beaten Mike Lee but Petey Cook hurt himself, so they pulled a guy out of the crowd to fight me in the finals. I ended up beating some guy from the crowd. I got 500 bucks, and I was the first WEF lightweight champion. How did they find the guy from the crowd? What they do? Just I mean, TJ yeah, man, used to they, do that in, yeah, in Future Brawl. He'd, he'd say, I got 100 bucks. Who wants this? You know, kind of thing. Yeah, they made an announcement over, the, over like, the loudspeaker and was like, does anybody want to fight in the finals? Because Dean Thomas, and his name was Ed Lutz. And he was like, I'll do it. And he did. It was an yeah. easy payday for me. And what are your memories of Jamie? I mean, like you just said, a lot of people have problems with him. But what what were your memories of him? I mean, he, he was a fun guy. Like, that's one thing you can't deny about him is that he was a fun guy. Like, he loved to have fun. He loved to, like joke around and play, but he was also a businessman. So like his business, he was gonna put it this way, like in terms of business, he was gonna eat before you ate. So like, that's the way he conducted business. You know, he, like, I don't think he, he really intentionally meant to like screw a lot of people over. He just would say shit that he couldn't cash in on, that he couldn't really honor. And then when it came down to it, he made sure he ate first, you know, before anybody else. So like, that's just, you know, he just wanted to be a big-time player, but he didn't really have the money to be a big-time player. But, like, you know, it's funny because his son, I'm friends with his son on Instagram, Cody, and I remember his son when he was six. He, his son actually gave me my nickname, The Dominator, way back then. And his son now boxes, and he trains in Miami, and he's a good kid, so, like, I, I keep in touch with his son. But Jamie Levine, he wasn't the, he wasn't the snake that we thought he was. I mean, he... He, he, was, he was an all right dude, man. And, you know, what did you think about when his life kind of came to pass like that? Were you still talking to him at all? I mean, I know he got locked up, but. 
No, I wasn't. Like when all that when all that went down with him, like he, he got in trouble, he got locked up for like allegedly messing with some young girl. So like he had gotten in some serious trouble. But by this time, man, I wasn't talking to him or dealing with him. So like I just for me, you know, the way I live my life, man, I, I meet so many people and I like to have so many different experiences. It's almost like when I'm when somebody's out of my life, they're just out of my life. And at that time, Jamie was out of my life. So like he would sometimes he would call. I wouldn't I wouldn't answer. I wouldn't return his calls. I just didn't want nothing to do with him. And I mean, now I kind of regret it, you know, that he's gone. But we, hey, I'm friends with his son, so there we go. Yeah, I mean, he 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 wasn't involved in an MMA. Before. He, I mean, right? He had kind of fallen off no. the map as far as that had gone. No, I mean, he was he was he was too young back then. No, I mean Jamie. At the time that oh. he kind of got in trouble, he wasn't involved in anything. Oh no, no, no. He might. I mean, I don't even know what he was doing by that time. I think he was just trying to survive because, like, he had gotten like all that trouble, and people at MMA didn't want to deal with him no more. So he was really just trying to survive. I think he might have been working with his uncle, doing dentistry at his uncle's dentistry. So yeah, he he for sure wasn't involved with MMA at that time. So kind of tell me about Dan Lambert, because I know you kind of met him in the beginnings of American Top Team. And, you know, like Binky has told me, Dan Lambert's really kind of the guy that kind of the unsung hero of the UFC that a lot of people don't even realize. Can you yeah, kind of tell I mean, me Dan Lambert is a – he really is. Like, he's, he's probably responsible for helping more careers than any single person other than Dana White in the world. I mean, Dan Lambert is really, from day one – in the beginning have has helped so many people, giving them money, giving them opportunities, giving them chances in order to make it in their career. And uh, I mean, he helped me out. Like if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have made it. I mean, he got me an apartment in South Florida so I could live. He gave us money to eat. He, I mean, supplied an environment for everybody. I mean, he, I mean, now he, he's kind of focuses his, his, his time to American top team. But back then, I mean, he really helped a lot of people, like whether they were top team or just like struggling fighters, like Dan Lambert was responsible for really getting a lot of guys out of the gutter. And, and what did he do for a career? What was he doing before then? He was, um, he does timeshares. He did time, I don't know if he still does it, but I mean, he was involved in timeshares, like he sold timeshares. So like, his business, like when his business was doing good, like we were eating good. Well, I'm telling you, like we was taking, like we would go to hook and shoot events in private planes. <laughs> like Dan would hook us up with private planes, get us all hotel, big ass hotel rooms. We was eating good back then, man, because his business was doing good. So it kind of changed a little bit? Yeah, I mean, when the sport started to grow, you know, the team got bigger. So then, you know, we, you know, on a personal level, like we weren't really getting taken care of the same way. And not that that was wrong. I mean, that's what we wanted was a big team. So the team got bigger. And as the team got bigger, you know, like instead of putting money into individual fighters, he still did, but he put it into the team and he built the team, American top team. So like, that's really what he focused on was building the team. And I mean, it paid his dividends. I mean, now, you know, American Top Team is one of the best gyms in the world. So, I mean, it, the proof is in the pudding. 
Yeah, and who were some of the fighters? Like, you you were more – that was kind of in the beginning of your coaching phase, right? When when the – in the beginning of my coaching phase? With American Top Team, or were you still fighting a lot when – No, I was still like fighting. I was still fighting. So, like, I didn't, I didn't start coaching there until, like, five or six years ago. Oh. When, when we had all that beef with the Black Zillions, they brought me in to be a coach – for that so then I just stuck I stuck around and who were some of the fighters you were working with primarily or were you just working with all of them really all of them like like when when I first started coaching for American Top Team like I said it was for when we were when we did the Ultimate Fighter season 21 so like Haider Hassan I used to work a lot with Haider Hassan uh Steve Carl Jeez, who else was on our team? <laughs> it's hard to even remember some of the guys that were on the team. There was so many of them at that time. Um, I don't know, just a, a gang of welterweights. Euros, I can't even remember his last name, but there's a gang of welterweights that we had on the team that I used to just work with. Um, and then after that season was done, I started working with, you know, just random guys on the team. Um, I worked with Nick Lentz a little bit. And, and uh, just a little bit of everybody, man. Like, that was kind of my job was just to, like, see who needed help and just help them out. Yeah, I kind of wondered how that was because I know it's such a big team and you got a lot of coaches there. How does that dynamic work as far as? Well, back then it was like, it was kind of a free-for-all. It was, it's, it's a lot more organized now, but back then, when we, back then it was just kind of like, are these are the coaches, these are the fighters. Uh, help yourself and then but then we they organized it a little bit better to when to where now fighters have specific coaches that they can vibe with and they can develop some some sort of camaraderie with so it's a little bit more organized now but back then it was just kind of a free-for-all man it was like you know in fact like I remember working with Melvin Gillard for a long time and and that was kind of a nightmare because like I, I felt like I was trapped I was forced to work with him and um and it was it was kind of a nightmare because like he was kind of he was a hard he was a hard dude to work with at times. Yeah, I thought he was pretty talented, but you know it just didn't it didn't work for him for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean he was a talented dude, like very physical, very you know picked up things relatively quickly. You know, athletic as all hell, strong as all hell, but like he was just kind of you know unreliable and. And he kind of, he would kind of bullshit you every once in a while. So you probably felt like you're being bullshit. And I would just be like, dude, I don't really give a shit. Just tell me the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. You want to show up or not? So what do you think about, like, I know when you have a big team like that and eventually guys have to fight each other, like you had this dynamic with Colby, you know, kind of trashing other guys on the team. What, what did you think about that stuff when it happened? I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was wrong. I mean, it, you know, times like that, you need to keep it kind of professional because, you know, we're we're all we are all supposed to be representing the same flag, and it really kind of hit home when Tyron fought Robbie Lawler. You know, we we talked about it. They were like, "Man, it's all good. Tyron can come down here. We don't care. You know, we're all the same team. You know, it's a win-win for all of us." But then when it kind of happened, it got sour, man. Like, you know, guys' feelings got hurt. So. I mean, that was kind of the start of it. And then, so then we just decided to kind of do our own thing elsewhere with Tyron. 
then uh, you know, then when Kobe came up into the scene and started bad math, bad mouthing Dustin Poirier and and Jorge Masvidal, like that's when it got really bad. And they just, you know, decided to split ways with Kobe and then made a new rule and like, hey, listen, no more trash talking your teammates. I mean, it just, I mean, it's a bad look for the team to, to have that. Yeah, but when you have a team that's so big, it's inevitable that some are going to face off. It creates a difficulty, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, but you know what? At the end of the day, man, like, it's all a money game. Like, you know, you want to try to get money. So, it's all, like, for me, I, like, I would rather fight somebody that I know and like to help them make money. Like, I, so, like, if, like, that's why, you know, like, Khabib and, and, and like, Khabib fighting Connor again. Khabib was like, I'm not going to fight him again because I don't want to help him make money. And that's the way I saw the game, too. Like, I would much rather fight a dude that I like, a dude that's my friend, to help him make some money. I mean, we can have a little playful trash talk if y'all want, but at the end of the day, we're just trying to make money together. We're business partners. And fighters need to look at it like that. Like, guys, the top team need to look at it like that. We're business partners. We're about to get, we're about to get paid together. Yeah, you know, but it's hard. I mean, some of these guys don't look at the sport that way. They look at well, it more personal. And a lot of fighters are sensitive, too. So, like, they take everything personally because they're very sensitive. And, and they just – they don't they can't see past it. They can't compartmentalize, like, the idea of fighting somebody and then also trying to make money from it. So, like, they just – you know, they have problems with that. But didn't the whole split with Black Zillions kind of – isn't that – wasn't some of that involved with that? They wanted to do their own, you know. Well, well the, the Black Zillions leave the top team in the beginning? Yeah. Um, It wasn't – it didn't have anything to do with, like – they just wanted – you know, the thing was they just wanted more. You know, like a lot of them guys just wanted more. Like I said, in the beginning, we were getting taken care of, like on a personal level. Like Dan was hooking everybody up. Then when the team got big, you know, that kind of stopped. It, it went away. And then, like, the Black Zillion guy, Glenn Robinson, came along and then offered these guys that type of lifestyle. And was like, hey, I'll take care of you the way Dan used to take care of you. And they were like, peace, I'm out. And that's kind of how it happened. It wasn't like it was beef. They were just like, Glenn Robinson came along and offered them money. And they were like, all right, peace. Yeah, I don't know. It's like you can have this big team, but there's always going to be these kind of maybe divides of some sort, you know. So I always thought that was kind of like it. And you kind of split from American Top Team, didn't you? Yeah, I just, you know, like I'm at the, I'm at an age now where I just wanted, kind of wanted to do my own thing, man. You know, like like we talked about earlier, like, it wasn't a hard transition for you to go from Hawaii to Oklahoma because like you at an age now where it's cool. So for me, like I'm at an age where like, I, I don't want to be around all that rah, rah, you know, he's arguing, you know, crazy Brazilian dudes. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I didn't want that no more. So I just, I was like, you know what? Peace, I'm out. And I just bounced, man. I just, I wanted to do my own thing and run it my own way. Yeah, so you're are you running it in Florida or are you kind of how yeah, are you, I'm, how are I'm you still doing in Florida. I'm still in Florida. I just you know, I train out of my house now. I just converted my garage into a training facility and I just train a couple of people. But I I give them all my attention though. So like 
you know, I have a good, I have good chemistry with my people and I just, and that's it, man. You know, I don't really, I don't really mess with a lot of people, but so we're kind of freelancing. Like we do go around to different gyms and just kind of freelance, man. And just, and just kind of like when I started, you know what I'm saying? Like when I got started, just doing it on our own. So like, that's, I've kind of went full circle. And one of those people is Jillian Robinson or Ro Robertson, right? Yeah. Jillian Robertson. Like she's from my hometown. So like I, I kind of got a special soft spot for her because she and she's from my hometown and she's really like the most dedicated, hard, per, hard working person I know, man. Like she's incredibly dedicated to her craft. So like I really give her a little I really give her everything I got because like she's she's willing to fucking just be like, yo, let's train, let's train, let's train, let's do it, let's do it. So I'm like, let's go. How would you compare to someone like maybe like Nunez or other people you've worked with that are? I mean, she's, I, I mean, like the thing is like, you know, Amanda is like a world-class athlete. Like and you can see that as soon as she steps on the mat, like just the way she walks. I mean, she's like, she's got bounce in her step and she's, she can jump high and run fast. And like, she's a great athlete. Jillian don't have any of that. You know, like Jillian's not an athlete. She's never played a sport. Like she, she comes from a background of, of, she wanted to be a veterinarian. Somehow she found fighting and fell in love with it. So like, this is the first athletic endeavor she's ever had. So it's a little harder to work with her because like she just doesn't pick things up fast. But like I said, in terms of her work ethic, like she's got more work ethic than all of them combined. Like, you know, and, and that's not the, a knock against like Amanda and them. It's just, they don't have to work as hard because they, they pick it up like this. Like Jillian doesn't pick things up like that. She's got to work at it. But how do you develop her in the UFC where they're just going to throw whoever they go, they'll put her against whoever. Yeah. But that's, but that's how she is, man. She'll fight anybody. Like she'll never turn down a fight no matter what. Like, it'll be like, she just fought. And they're like, you want to fight this girl? She'll be like, all right. <laughs> I get, I think, I think I get, she feels like it's her duty because she trains to test it so like and i and i can really appreciate that about her man because she's not afraid of anybody so what do you see for her maybe in the next year or two it, i'm hoping you know like she can get on a run like but that's the thing with her is it because because she's not a natural like she has to get into a rhythm so like that's why she wants to fight all the time and like she competes a lot in grappling tournaments and the more she does that the better she gets in a rhythm so like I just want to keep it going. So like I want to keep her busy, whether win or lose, keep her busy because once she gets winning, she can she can compound on that and just start rolling with that. So like, you know, she's fighting this weekend coming up. So hopefully that goes well, and hopefully we can get a, a quick turnaround or if not a quick turnaround, a, a grappling match, or just whatever, man, just to keep her busy and active. What did you think of uh, Canejo last night? Did you watch? Did you watch the fights last night? Yeah, I did. Which which fight was she, that? She was the one who kept getting in the case of Gatami, like the scarfold over and over again. The Mexican fighter. The oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. I know her. Um, she actually beat a fighter that I trained, uh, Janessa. Yeah, that girl's tough, man. Yeah, I thought you know what did you think about? She kind of got into the position, but maybe she wasn't. Well, you know, using the Japanese pinning combinations to maybe get the finish a little bit better. 
Yeah, well, that's, you know, she does that. Because when I, I watched her fight before, but like I said, when she fought a girl that I used to train, that's her move, man. Like, she goes to that. Like, that's her go-to move. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that she was really trying to trying to hit that scarf hold and, and make that work for her. But, you know, if that's your move, everybody knows that's your move. So, like, they're, they're you know, they're going to have a defense for that. So, like, you know, that's she's going to struggle with that at the UFC level. Trying to trying to nail that down, but that she can really disguise it with something else. Yeah, I think a lot of people didn't understand that position or just stuff that I was reading. People were like, you know, thinking it was a basic headlock, but there's, you know, there's little technical nuances depending the opponent in that position, you know, to where they can't get their legs back in and things like that. Why do you think she was having a little bit of trouble finishing? I think I just think it because, you know. At the UFC level, you know, I, I think that, um, and, I, and I know Cheyenne too, you know, I think they probably studied her and knew that she was going to do that and they just worked on a lot of defense for it. So I, I think that was, I think that was the case, man, that, you know, at that, at that level, it's hard to get away with your tricks for so long mm -hmm. before, before everybody starts to figure them out. So you got to disguise them a little bit better, have some, some different tricks. And then you can come back to it, but you know she—that's a strong position for her. She she shouldn't she shouldn't lose it or or get away from it. She just has to disguise it a little better and add some different things to it. Yeah. So let's kind of talk a little bit about more about your fighting career because maybe not particular fights, but let's kind of talk about like when you fought in Hawaii when I first met you. What were your impressions about fighting in Super Brawl? Oh man, I loved it. I. I mean, honestly, like, I passed up fighting in the UFC for the title to fight in Super Brawl. They asked me to fight Jens Pulver in the UFC for the title, and I said, hell no. I want to go to Hawaii and fight in Super Brawl. And I, that was probably one of the best trips I've ever had. You know, we was hanging out in Hawaii, riding motor, motor scooters and, you know, just – everything about Hawaii was, was like love. Like something about it was just like a beautiful, like the, the aura of the, of the place was just beautiful. And the event was great. I had a great time in Hawaii. Like every time I go to Hawaii, I've been to Hawaii a couple of times since, but that might've been my, my best trip to Hawaii was the first time I fought there. But you got a lot of major heat. I thought we'd see you again. Why do we never see you again? <laughs> Oh, yeah, but for whatever reason, like, you know, I was talking a little shit afterwards on the mic, and then, um, you know, Hawaiians, they, you know, they started booing me and throwing beer on me and stuff, but but then I realized that's just their culture, man. Like, they don't let, they don't let you know, Americans come over there talking trash, and I get it, so I, I understood it now, and then I was like, you know what, they're right. Like, I'm, I'm an outsider. What am I doing coming over here talking trash? So I get it. And I'm sure a lot of American soldiers probably do that, you know, go over there and give, uh, you know, mainlanders a bad reputation. So I get it. But I mean, TJ Thompson was able to do a lot with Mayhem Miller because that's kind of what he did. And eventually they kind of embraced him, but that's what he was doing after his fights initially. So I thought we'd see you again. I was like, TJ would probably bring this guy back and a lot of people come out and to boo him. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, we never you know saw what? you again. What happened? I'm not sure what happened, man. Like, I don't know why I didn't go back. Well, like, I went out there 
to corner Dustin Dennis when he fought. And then I went out there. Um, and then I just went out there recently with with Dana and Matt on looking for a fight, but that was last year. But the only other time I went out there was to corner somebody, but I didn't I don't know why TJ didn't bring me out there to fight. Because I, I mean fighting was that the Bozo fight, that was a pretty important fight at the time. It was. I mean, and Bozo hit me harder than anybody that's ever hit me. I mean, Bozo had some pop. Yeah, so I mean when you came, that was a pretty big win. So I thought you know, we'll probably see you there again, and it just never materialized. And I was I always wondered why that was. Yeah, I think I don't know. I think because um, I don't know. I probably just at that time. I think then after that, I think I fought in Shudo again, and then I think I went right to the UFC after that. So that kind of, I think that kind of tied me up. So tell me about like your first fight in Shudo. You go to Crockwin Hall. What did you think of all that? Just oh, that experience. was pretty surreal. That was that was pretty surreal because, you know, getting started in fighting, like, that was my goal was to fight in Japan. Like, that was it. Like, it wasn't UFC like it is, you know, like these kids today. It was, like, to fight in Japan. So, it was pretty surreal just to have the opportunity to go. And I, I fought Uno my first time over there. And, like I said, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I was there by myself. And uh, Ryan Bow, bless his heart. You know, Ryan, I don't even know where, I don't even know if he's alive now. I don't know what that kid is up to these days, but. He's in Seattle. He has a gym. Fight Gods is what it's called. Oh, does it, for real? Yeah. So, yeah, so Ryan Bo was my corner. Like, I met him over there, and he was my corner. And then, um, and I lost the fight, but, I mean, it was a it was a good experience, man, to get over there. Like, I like those experiences, like, you couldn't pay for those experiences. Those the invaluable experiences that I just 100% appreciate. But, I mean, for people, most people have never been to Karakwon Hall, especially new fans. Tell, tell them about Karakwon Hall because, you know, I always ask I'm, fighters that have fought there, describe this place because it's, it's – It's legendary. Special. I mean, it's legendary. Like, I remember, like, you've seen it on TV, like, on video, and, like, man, I, you want to go there. And then when you get there, it's like it's a, like it's next to the Tokyo Dome. So, like, you're surrounded by the Tokyo Dome, and the Tokyo Dome is like this – big you know complex that has like a, like a like an amusement park and all that stuff and then off on the side there's the Kirakun hall this small little place this legendary for what was probably the best fighters in japan and the most realistic organization in japan because at that time shudo was the place to be because all the other organizations had didn't have the reputation that shudo had like pancrase and all that they had reputations of having works, but Shudo was, they prided itself off of being a real organization with real fighters it, with integrity. So there was a sense of pride about fighting in Shudo and fighting at the Kirakuen Hall. Even as small as it was, there was a sense of, of integrity and you were proud to have fought there. And, like, and just being inside that place was just, was, was, a, was surreal. And, and it was the first time where, because at that time, like Japanese MMA was, it wasn't even called MMA back then, but that it was, they were way far advanced than, than the U.S. And I remember it was the first time I've ever been to a place where all the fighters were inside the ring before the fight, warming up and working out. And I was looking at these guys like, man, these guys are really good. Because like compared to the States, guys were still like 
just either wrestlers or doing, you know, or boxers, and they just weren't that good. But back in 1999, I remember going to the Kirkun Hall and seeing all the fighters inside that ring. They were inside the ring warming up, and I'm, I was in awe, like, man, they all can wrestle. They all can strike. They all had good submissions, and I was like, damn. Like, I don't know how I'm going to compete with these guys. But they were all really good. Yeah, I think that's what made them unique. I think that's why they had so much success because they were, like Barrett kind of said when he fought Mamoru, Mamoru was already well-rounded, you know, and that's kind of what he remembered yeah. fighting in Chuto. These guys are already well-rounded when most people weren't. That's what it was, man. Like, you know, like going to the States, like everybody was so one-dimensional, but over there, like everybody was well-rounded. And like that, it was the first time I had ever seen that. And it was the first time I had ever seen like, them treated as such a sport where like they were in the they were all in the cage or, or in the ring together warming up but like in the states it was like it was everybody mean mugging each other and he, you know and, and you know nobody wanted to talk to each other and everybody was mad at each other and everybody sucked <laughs> so it was like it was such a big difference it was like they were way ahead of their time now how did you end up on the show with dana white the looking for a fight and how did that happen well, I was um I was coaching a top team, and I was actually coaching Amanda. She was about to fight Misha Tate, and um, the show had been going on for maybe I think a, a, maybe a year or two, and the guy who was on the show got kicked off for whatever reason. He had a beef with Dana and got kicked off. So, I, like I said, I was in the gym coaching Amanda, and I got a phone call from from a seven zero two number, a Vegas number, and I was like, I don't know anybody in Vegas. I didn't answer. So then Matt calls me and Matt Sarah calls me. He's like, yo, man, Dana's calling you. He's looking for you. I'm like, oh, no, what did I do now? You know, like, I'm in trouble. So then he calls back and I answer it. And he's like, yo, you ever seen the show Looking for a Fight? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't ever seen it. I just said that. And then he, <laughs> said, he says, yeah, well, you know, we got a spot open. You want it? And I was like, of course I want it. And he's like, he's like, the catch is you got to leave tomorrow. And I was like, perfect. I got a bag packed in the cars. Just send me a ticket. They did, and I left the next day, and I was on the show. But did he have, like, some close relationship with you? Is that why he chose you? No, he really, it was Matt. You know, I got to give him, you know, Matt Sarah. You know, and, like, me and Matt Sarah have always been good friends. But, you know, we I didn't, I would never expect Matt to, like, had, you know, vouch for me at that point because I, I probably hadn't talked to him for, in, like, a year or two. But Matt, they were like, yo, who can we get to do the show? And Matt was like, man, you know, Dean, I'm sure he's available. And I was available. And boom. Resurrection. And what did that show do for you? I mean, it just really put me back in the in the scene. I mean, it really did put me back in the scene. You know, I was just coaching. And, you know, I mean, coaching is fun. But the problem with coaching is that you have a choice to make. You can either, you know, treat it as a job or you can live vicariously through your fighters. But, you know, for me, like, I like to think of myself as an artist and I have to express myself as well. So like, there was no outlet for me. So, you know, I, I'm putting all my energy into other people coaching them and I had no outlet. So getting on this show provided me an outlet that I can for myself as opposed to putting all my energy into the fighters. So I had my own outlet. So getting on this show gave me my, gave me an outlet and now it's given me a tremendous amount of opportunity. Now, now I'm 
working the desk as an analyst for UFC and and I got my own little spin-off show the Dean Diaries so like I got now I can put some energy back into me as opposed to everybody else yeah you kind of just start doing the desk stuff how do you think that yeah. went I thought it went I thought it went okay um you know like I'm pretty comfortable in front of a camera and in, and and you know under the lights just from you know doing it you know, my entire, you know, half my life, I always had a, a great respect for that while I was fighting, you know, I always knew the importance of being able to speak and, and be camera friendly. So, you know, I thought that went well. I mean, some of the technical stuff I, I, I got to get better at, I get used to it, but, but I thought for my first run, I thought it was, it was okay. Like they tell you, okay, we're going to have you do more of this, or do you have any idea what your schedule is or? I don't. I don't know. I know that they said. Um. You know. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. They're gonna give me some more cracks at it. You know. They. They understand. They know that. You know. We don't. Fighters don't. You know. They don't have a school. They. Don't, we don't go to school for this. So like, <laughs> they know that the only way to get good at it is to just get in there and do it and get reps. And they know the work ethic of most fighters is pretty. Is pretty tough. So they know that that I'm gonna put the work in and and get out there and do it. I just want to ask a couple more things. Uh. One thing, I know we talked about Amanda a little bit, but maybe you could kind of expand on that. You've worked with her a lot. What kind of things do you make, think make her special beyond just like, you know, her athletic ability and things? Her, she's like, she's got supreme confidence. Like her confidence is out the roof. And she, I don't know where that comes from, but, or when when it hit, because like as soon as it hit, it was I think it was like right after she won the title, because she was always good, but like right after she won the title, she was like, "This is what I'm doing, and nobody's gonna beat me." And it's whatever it is, you know, whatever it is in her head, told her she was the best in the world. She believed it, and and she proved it. So, I think that's what separates her from everybody else. Is it? her confidence is so is supreme and it's real. Like some people talk a big game, but I think they're just trying to convince themselves that they're good. She believes it and it shows. Yeah. I think the Brazilians are kind of like the Japanese were early in fight in women fighting. I think like as a collective, they're a little more advanced. Do you, do you think? Yeah. So? Yeah. I think so too. Just because, you know, I think they've been around it longer. You know, they've just, they've just been around it longer. And, yeah, I mean, I'm really, that, that, that has to be it, really. They've just been around it longer. You know, when you look at some of these girls, like right now, like the, the flyweight division in the UFC, the women's flyweight division has two girls, like, that are just, like, they're kind of dark horses, man. Uh, Viviani Araujo and Talia Santos. I mean, these girls are the real deal. I mean, they're solid, and uh, and <laughs> all and all the other girls in the division know it too. They're all kind of like, "Uh oh, we better watch out for these girls." But you know, and they're not even you know, Viviani's. She's, I think she's just ranked in the top ten now. But but trust me, they're they're really solid, man. And you know, and it just you could see their experience from you know from probably from just being around it for a long time. Yeah, another thing I know you were kind of, you did some things for mental health. You did the bike ride and those things. Yeah. Why, why did that become something that you wanted to to focus on? You know, 
mental health in MMA is a big thing. I, I think that it, it, it's often underserved and overlooked. You know, a lot, a lot of people look at the, you know, they just see fighters and, you know, just expect them to be tough and just to gut things out. But, you know, dealing with fighters, you know, my entire life, mostly, you know, more than half my life, you know, most of them aren't fully there, which is why they get into it. And then when they get into it, it's such a hard life that it just, it gets worse. And a lot of them aren't, you know, healthy mentally. So I wanted to shed some light on this and just really open up people's eyes towards mental health and, and let fighters know that, you know, you got to take care of yourself because, and you can't do it with violence. Cause that's kind of the way we do it. You know, it's like, Oh, we have a problem. Violence, <laughs> go to the gym and, and punch the bag, you know, but there are healthier ways to deal with, to deal with it. So, you know, I wanted to kind of shed some light on that. Yeah. And I know you would known Chad so long, you know, Chad Saunders and yeah, that's a perfect case. I mean, you know, here's a kid who, who he was so talented early on and and then you know and he, we didn't even know that he was probably dealing with mental health you know just because like it's not something we talked about you know this was this was i mean obviously you know 10 15 years ago but you know he ended up putting a bullet a couple of bullets in himself because he couldn't deal with it and he just i watched him spiral downwards you know after a loss that he couldn't deal with and this his life just kind of spiraled downwards until he took his own life and it's a sad case and and every so often you hear about these you know some an mma guy who just kind of kind of loses it like the kid just recently stabbed his sisters and they and they they vouch for him that he has mental issues and nobody wants to talk about it because oh they're fighters he's you know go to the gym and hit the bag and brush it off but that doesn't work, you know, it, it, you know, it requires therapy and, you know, and, and a lot more work than just, you know, hitting the bag and brushing it off. Well, Dean, you know, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this. Is there anything you kind of, someone listening to this that you want to maybe leave them with or something you wanted to talk about that you've been doing? Well, I just, I'm going to give you a shout out, Ty, because like a lot of people might not know how long you've been in the game for. I mean, Ty, you've been in the game since day one. And not a lot of people might not know it. It, it. Like it's it's to me, you know, when I see all these guys in the game, I always, you know, I just go, man, you don't know what the game is about because you ain't even been in it. And when I see guys like you involved, still involved, and like these new jacks come in, like they may not give you your respect, and they need to give you your respect because you've been in the game just as long as anybody. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, if you all if y'all out there, y'all. You better recognize Ty been in the game since day one. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. What's something that you're up to that maybe you'd like for people to, or something you could plug or talk about? Um, well, the next, I'm probably going to be filming another episode of the Dean Diaries coming up. Uh, we're working on that. Um, if uh, And I'm, I know I'm going to be working a desk soon, and I'm doing a, an episode, another episode of the of Fight Party, too. So, And you know what? And I got a lot of podcasts, too, that y'all can catch me on. I'm on a, on a serious MMA podcast on Sirius, and then um, then I do a podcast with TJ DeSantis uh, on uh, Fight Pass, and that's the extra round. So, um, And then I'm on the radio, ESPN West Palm. You can plug that in, too. So I do a lot of different things, man. I'm all over the place. All right, man. Well, I appreciate it. It was great talking to you again. It's been a long time. 
All right, my man, you take it easy, man. I'll catch up with you. Yeah, take care and good luck to you and Jillian Robertson and everything. All right, man. Peace out. I appreciate it. Take care. Now, if you're interested in following Dean Thomas, yeah, he's under Dean Thomas on Instagram. It's a fairly easy follow. And uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's uh, the underscore Todd underscore Atkins underscore show. And uh, please subscribe to my YouTube and TikTok, which are Todd Atkins show. And please subscribe to this podcast. As always, I appreciate your support and uh, many more episodes coming in the next couple of days. So check them out. Take care.